This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Bernard Hopkins, the former boxing world champ, is one of the greatest fighters of the modern era and continues to stay involved in the sport since retiring in 2016. We went to Atlantic City back in 2011 to meet up with Hopkins to discuss everything from his strict diet. Soda to me is like liquid crack. It don't do anything for the body. To his unforgettable win just weeks after 9-11. That would be attached to the biggest night of my career. He reflected on his childhood. I wanted to be the baddest bad guy in the neighborhood. Run-ins with the law. We don't think about getting caught. Nobody thinks they're gonna get caught or they wouldn't do it. And detailed the five years he spent behind bars. Once you break the rules of being a snitch, you might be in a body bag. But we began our chat discussing his approach when it comes to fighting. When you're walking out to the ring, what's your mindset? Um, seek and destroy, him or me, his family or my family. Uh, I, I, I look at boxing as uh, a contest where um, in checkers you can get up and say good game and it's over, win or lose. In boxing, you can step in that ring and never be the same like you went in. There's a lot of evidence and a lot of proof that uh, you can go in right but not come out right. One fight. So I don't look at it as, as, as uh, scared to death or worrying about what's going to happen. Um, if I train, which I do, as hard as I do, and I put all my work in, and I go to sleep early, wake up early, um, and there's no shortcuts in the eight, nine weeks of training, the night of the fight is, 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 is like uh, a, a girl, guy going on a prom. Can't wait. I'm ready. Because um, I put everything in. Right now, I can't wait. It, it gets to the point even now in the 20-something years. Um, I still have two weeks, um, a little less than two weeks. Uh, I'm ready. I'm because ready to you go. have that I confidence could, from I, being I, prepared? I, the confidence, yes. The confidence comes from preparing yourself. The confidence comes from... Um, knowing that you, you, you study to take the test. Uh, it, it goes beyond sports and life. When you prepare yourself right, and you know you prepare yourself right, and you step in that school, whether it's college, high school, elementary school, once you have that knowledge and you know that self-confidence, uh, 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 and you become older and know that, when you put that work in, you go and you sit down and you take that damn driver test and you know you're going to pass it before you even pass it. Um, that comes from practice and that comes from studying. When you don't do these things and self-doubt, not talking about Mike Tyson because obviously even having that fear, he still became the oldest, the youngest, excuse me, uh, heavyweight champion ever and had a, had a hell of a career even with that self-doubt. Um, but when I go in there, I know there's not eight men, there's not six men, there's not 15 men against me. And that ring physically, uh, there's one man versus one man. It's easy for me to go in the ring and say, let's, 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 let's do it. It's not actually fun, but let's do it. I love the challenge. I love a good fight. What emotions do you generally feel towards your opponent when you get in that ring? Um, I respect them to not like them. To not like them and don't respect them will put myself in the line of, Unestimating 
or not aware that what can be done, what I can do to him can be done to me if I don't be aware of his strength just as well as his weakness. Um, I'm a real big fan of the art of war, and I'm a real big fan of strategy. Uh, I'm a real big fan of, of, of how to, to let a guy know that he means what he say, but it's going to be a time where he has to prove it. And talking won't beat Bernard Hopkins. It won't uh, disturb me from uh, doubt or taking it easy. When you're in the ring, fight in progress, mid-round, what do you think about? Well, it all depends on what condition that I got my opponent in. But I always think from round to 12 rounds, um, be smart. Keep the pressure, let your hands go, duck more than you take, and execute. And the plan is there. Um, if you train and you look at your opponent on film, I want to know how you take his instructions, even he's winning or losing. There's so many, so many footage out there on both of us where if he gives any uh, uh, clue that when adversity come, he looks the other way when his trainer talks to him. He looks up, he looks down. More or less like you don't want to hear it. You're not focused. And so those things I look for very, very key. And I also look for the goodness and the, the strength and then the weakness and then break him down. Take his style and use it against him. And with younger fighters, you normally can accomplish that real early in a fight. Kelly Pavlik, Jermaine Teller, Gene Pascal. These guys are old enough to be my son, if you do the math. And so when you teach them, you teach them and whoop them at the same time, and then if they are humble enough, they will get something out of it. If they don't, then they'll be haunted and their careers will be over. In addition to the training and the diet, you spent your career as one of the sport's best defensive fighters. How much do you think that's helped in terms of the longevity? The fans want to see blood and guts. They want to see a knockout, drag out, neighborhood bar fight. Sure, right. I can't blame any fan that wants to get all of their money's worth down to the penny. But then I got to have you don't want to be on the receiving I got to have a human interest and think about when this boxing game is over, how do I represent myself when I speak to my daughter's teacher, my daughter's 12, how do I represent myself when I'm going to one of her dance plays, how do I represent myself even in my own outside of boxing, corporate, real estate, whatever business that that, that comes upon me in the future, I cannot give you a headshot just because I want to sell tickets and I want to be that exciting fighter. I see the repercussions of the past fighters every day that I run into in Philadelphia. When was the last time you had alcohol? 23 years ago, uh, even longer. It was. When I was 18, 17, 16, when I was younger. What about soda today? No, 
Soda is the worst thing. If the soda to me is like liquid crack. Uh, it don't do anything for the body. It's junk and it's part of the obese problem that we have in the country today, which is over 70%. So if you want to avoid diabetes and you're 13 to 12, you got to cut a lot of things out. And it's kind of hard when you've been passed on a tradition that your mother, your aunt, and, and your guardians didn't, 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 you know, didn't tell you uh, what this thing can do. But sodas is horrible. I don't drink club soda. I don't drink anything that, that well, Perrier water. I mean, that has a little fizz and carbon in it. But when it comes to any soda, I, don't, I stay away from it. It's bad for you. It's, just, it's, 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 it's a drug itself. What do the eating habits entail? Um, I, I'm more or less like a Whole Foods guy. I'm more or less like an organic guy. I do eat red meat. I don't eat it a lot. Um, I, 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 and uh, is it only buffalo and buffalo, something else I eat when a lot you of eat red meat? Yeah, but I eat buffalo. I eat lamb. But a lot of stuff that I eat is more like fish, chicken, uh, a lot of soy burgers and, and turkey burgers and ground turkey. A lot of stuff I get, I get from farmer's market. I love shopping at the Amish people down at the Radiant Terminal. It's, it's, it's a big, big two-block radiant of, of, of flea market of all kinds of fresh stuff like that. But, you know, my fun stuff, you know, every now and then uh, I get the low-fat cheesecake, if you believe it or not, they do make it. And um, that's my treat. After the fight, I'm sitting there with Dan Raphael. You know who that is. And we sitting there, and I'm eating the cheesecake. He basically went crazy, took a picture of it, put it on his Twitter. He got 1,800 I thought you only had, like, three bites of yeah, the cheesecake. Yeah, I only had though. three bites. But that just for people knowing that I had three bites of cheesecake, he got 1,800 hits. You understand? So, so but the, the thing is, is this. You can have fun. But... My type of fun is success of what, 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 I have, what I've accomplished and where I, what I came from, what I overcame, basically, is what I'm trying to say, is that my glass of wine is every day. It's just not red or white. And so I tell people they think I ain't having fun. I am. I'm just not having the fun that you like to have fun. What the last time you had fast food? Oh, man. I my, my fast food... Is 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 pro probably a joke to most people that eat cheesesteak and stuff. My fast food is um, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Quick. That's the quickest sandwich you can. We call it a poor man's milk. You grab it, you pick the peanut butter, you pick the pin, uh, the, the jelly, you eat it, and you say, okay, I got to get out of here because you want to run. It's a run sandwich, and it's a sandwich then that if um, you know if you're used to eating it, you don't need water. You know, and you know, the more peanut butter, the better the sandwich. You don't have to have a lot of jelly. Just some more peanut butter is, 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 is the bright sandwich to have. It's a steak and, steak and eggs. Yeah, you tell yourself that's what it is. It's a steak and eggs. And it'll hold you. You know, peanut butter, I mean, it's, it sticks to your ribs, man. It's, a, it's a choke sandwiches, we used to call them. What's the workout schedule like when you're training for about and then when you're out of training? Well, when I'm out of training, it's a health spa type of thing I do. When I mean health spa, I, I, I get steam, I, I swim, I get on elliptical. I do things to keep the motor running. Um, I like to sweat. I like to keep my body fit. 
I think as we speak right now, not knowing what next week, next year, next month, hoping it's good, I'm ahead of the game. And so the training lifestyle and what I do, it all was an investment to go back to that bank, which is me, just like in business, to get the entrance of what I put in, which is the principal. You're seeing the entrance that the 20s and the 30s, when everybody won and they drank champagne and they're having fun, and I'm not saying they're bad people, have fun. But I learned how to keep the candle lit on one wit, not two. Because the one-on-one -on -one wit is the life candle that's going to burn whether I like it or not, including you. So I realized that I'm already in the hurt blood business. That's wear and tear. Life itself, no matter how much you take care of yourself, you ain't doing it but buying time. So won't I give myself the better opportunity to stay around longer in life? It just happened to, happen to spill into what I do as an athlete, as I, my occupation is boxing. So to me, it, it, you know, I ain't stumble over it, but it, it just worked hand in hand. And that's what the, the, the training and the lifestyle and the eating and all that. And, 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 and I don't miss a day, man. I don't miss people. They, you know, I got friends that think of me like I'm crazy. So I'm like, hey, man, have, have some ice cream or, or let's do this or have that. Hey, man, I don't eat Philly cheesesteaks. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't. I just have this mindset that it ain't good for me. I want to take you back to your younger days when you were a boy growing up. What was life like? For you growing up? Challenging. Um, How so? You had to make choices and the choices was nine out of ten the wrong one. Now that you, now that I realize as years went on that when I was younger I had to, un I had to really adapt to what? Uh, four sisters, three brothers, oldest boy, that it was two sets of people in the neighborhood. One no in-between. Now, I'm not talking about mother and father. Don't even put them in it. I'm saying kids, young adults, older people, as we say old heads. There was the side that was lambs, and there was sides that clearly was wolves. I seen how the lamb was being treated. I seen how the wolf was being respected. Well, with an amateur record, with the reputation of being tough, could be mean guy just by the stare, the wolf side was the best side to be on because to me, compared to this side, they always look scared and shivery. And it seemed like this side always had the respect from the girl that everybody wants to talk to, all the way up to the young adults, not necessarily the parents, but the young adults that's older than us. You have to find your position.
And if you go on the wrong side, you will be tested. Because, yes, there's the lambs, tries to be a wolf. No one wants to say that they are lamb. You get exposed whether your hat was taken, your shoes was taken, your money was taken, your lunch money, your jacket is December cold. That was the choice that was there. And I chose to be the wolf for many, many years. You were the second of eight children. Your uh, father, Bernard Sr., was a sanitation worker. Your mother, Shirley, worked odd jobs. How much of a struggle was it for your parents to support all eight children? Well, it was, but it was more of a struggle even to raise me because I think with all the seven, with the sisters and my brother, and of course one of my brothers, Michael, got killed, but raising me, it's like raising 10 people because I was just as determined and focused and disciplined on the other side and the same energy and the same determination that I had then, I can go back 20 plus years and remember how disciplined and focused I wanted to be the baddest bad guy in the neighborhood. Your parents, uh, I understand, smoked, drank, it, did it, drugs. Yes, yes. How my did father, that impact you? Well, first, day, first of all, you're correct. Uh, my mother was more of a drinker. Um, I never see her use drugs, but my father, he, uh, he shot heroin, um, uh, dope. Um, I found needles, I found bottle caps that was burnt underneath. Later I'll find out what it was and why the caps I used to find that was sort of scorched underneath the top because of course as you get older, and I ain't had to get in my late teens, I mean about 12, um, I, I, I realized they cooked the dope in a cap, they light it with a lighter or a cigarette match, and they melt it down to a liquid and put the needle syringe and they pull it up in a rubber band or a hose on their arm and they shoot the dope. It was a popular drug in, in the 60s and the 70s. That's what your father was doing? Yeah. And part of that shot of his kidneys, bad living, drinking, and he died at 56, 57. And uh, my mother never reached 60 either. And so I have two parents that's been dead nine years, one 10 years, father, um, that had the opposite of lifestyle that I had. She got a chance to travel. I took her places. Um, I took her to a place in Bahamas, my place down there. I took her into Miami. And I got a chance to show her outside of Germantown, Shotnick Street, which she never witnessed before. And so she got a chance to see me be champion. She got a chance to see me uh, beat Trinidad in 2001, and she died in 2003. But I warned over and over, Mom, you got to lose weight. Mom, you got to stop drinking. Mom, you got to stop smoking. Mom, you got to stop drinking. She had a high blood pressure. She's not eating right. She's so heavy anyway. I said, you know, I said, it's a short life. It's a death sentence. But it's hard for people to, to break a habit or break uh, the, that disease or that 
monkey on your back. Um, that really like really like 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 sort of tripped me out because um, I wish that my mother and father would be able to like walk in this big house that um, I gave them a key and they got a big ribbon and they got this or um, dad let's get on a plane which he never been on a plane before I know never uh, we're going to Miami we're gonna walk the beach um, uh, that's something I think about often when that time come along because, um, you know, I, I want to be able to show them with life outside of Philadelphia, the neighborhood, um, that I traveled through boxing and seen and witnessed things that if I ain't straightened up, I would have blew it. How proud do you think your parents would be of you? Extremely. Because someone in the family made it to this level to be able to send three nieces to college and finish. Two nephews to college that's in there now, one at Dell State, the other one at Temple. I got a chance through this and using my sense to do things that wasn't done because of the situation. And I got a chance to give my nephews and nieces an opportunity if they do what they're supposed to do every semester that they're being clocked by my financial planner and my business people who writes the checks every month to pay that tuition, no scholarships. That to me says that mom and dad is proud, just on that. Forget the car, forget the house, forget the businesses. Great, you're not wasting your money on rims and a leather jacket and a gold chain. But just to do something of changing a cycle for my family's investment to be able to say, you didn't get a scholarship, times are rough, Stuff is dried up, it's not like it used to be, but you got an uncle that's gonna see you through. And so I did. That's important to me. How many times were you arrested growing up? Um, over 30. What were some of the things that you did? Everything, assault, theft by unlawful taking. Um, I always had the strategy of, of convincing somebody that um, they should go with me to do this or they should buy something that I know that wasn't real. Um, in today's world, they would call it good salesmanship. Theft by all, all lawful taking is having, say, jewelry um, or a box that's taped up like it's brand new. It's a 19-inch TV in there, but it's really 18 bricks red bricks, and once you kick the box or you fill the box, you just see they got a weight to it. But you don't know that the $200 you gave me, you just bought $200 worth of red bricks. Now, obviously you're upset when you get home. You thought you got something for nothing, and I capitalized on that. 
you call the police and say, hey, I got robbed. So when the thing is all sorted out, they realize that it wasn't a robbery. They realize that it was theft by unlawful taking. And so I had a few of those. But if you look at that then, that was really talent. <laughs> that was really talent to have a goal. But you got arrested almost every time you did it. But that's, <laughs> but that's the untalent. Maybe if you didn't that's get the caught. Untalent. That's the untalent version. But, but let me brag on the first one, though. The first one was talent that I pulled it off. Now, the untalent was you got arrested. You don't think about getting arrested. Don't you understand? You've never been a criminal. You never did things that I know of that broke the law because I can tell the way you reacted to that, and you're absolutely right. But we don't think about getting caught. Nobody thinks they're going to get caught or they wouldn't do it. So it happens more than once for me. You were also at one point stabbed, I understand. Yeah, I was stabbed three times. What happened? Three on three different occasions by three different people. One, I was a victim. Um, that happens in the jungle. Uh, you, uh, I was going to movies with the girlfriend, and three guys was on a sub downtown, Center City, Philadelphia, and I noticed the guys uh, uh, watching us um, as a stop was coming to a stop. Well, it was coming to a stop, and uh, I told her to take off her glasses and her earrings. That was a popular thing back in Philly. If you had those girls had those big uh, uh, earrings and. They'd take them, they'd take them out of the air, they'd run, or they'd go by the bus when the windows open, and they'd take them, and the bus would go off, and they'd go down the street. But that was a really popular thing in the 80s, early 80s. And so... Just ripping them off the air. Yeah, yeah, that, that was easy, yeah. But, uh, yeah, they'd do that. And so, uh, as came to a stop, doors open, they're right on us, back of us, take off your earrings, I'm telling them, she's taking off the tin glasses, they're trying to run, say, what's up? I said, what's up? So we got the fight, and one stabbed me. And then, you know, I think a hat fell off a pair of glasses, and they ran up the steps. I fought, tried to chase, I believe, one of them, and I just passed out. Um, I was in a hospital, Hanneman University, uh, for like uh, 30 days. Really? Yeah. And it was funny, because me and this girl, um, her mom told us to stay away from me, because I was really a bad guy, and everybody knew in the neighborhood. So we basically were sneaking to the movies, and that happened. But they came and see me. They made sure I was fine and stuff like what that. What happened when you were stabbed? Uh, I had a punch of glon. I got stabbed right underneath. I got a scar right here, still there. Okay. And so when I turned, when I turned around, what's up? Uh, if I didn't jump back just out of reaction, um, it would have hit my heart, the doctor said. So it was very close. Um, they had a chest tube in my uh, chest because I had a punctured lung, and uh, I collapsed and woke up in the hospital not two days later, but uh, the next morning, um, I had tubes uh, going through me. And like I said, I was in recovery for a couple of days, but I was there for 30 days. The whole stay was 30. What were those early days of prison like? The early days of prison was like for me is the lamb, in the wolf. As soon as you get through the quarter, Carter, 
And as soon as you get uh, uh, registered to where blocks and sell that you have to go to, it kicks in way before you get there, but it actually really hits you when you realize that there's no higher place, maybe another jail, but there's no higher place in a PA system than Greater Fort State Penitentiary. So basically, all the other stuff was high school and elementary school, the study center, the county. Now you made it to college on the other side of the, the world. And, and you said you spent many nights in there crying. What were you crying about? You might not never get out of there. And you always want to camouflage all of the weaknesses that might have come upon you while you're there, and you never do that in an open. It was a lot of praying, but it's also when you out of that cell, you would never tell nobody you prayed. You would never tell nobody you scared. You would never tell nobody you cried. And if you cry loud where they can hear you, you have to take lockup. Now, jail is not the TV stuff that's been portrayed for the last 20, 30 years. It's not. What's it like? It's not Oz that HBO Showtime used to play. Jail is a place that even though you're around this wall, that there are choices even in the worst situations. And if you want to sell drugs, there's drugs to sell. If you want to be into gambling, there's gambling to be into. It's a small version of the negative stuff that you was involved in in the street that's in there. How, how did you go about navigating that path? Well, one is you put yourself in a situation where you, who you hang with, who hang with you, and what you're into and what you're not into. If you're not into uh, certain things, you can't say you're not into it and you're with this person. Jail is sort of like the streets. If you're a known burglar, and I know you're a known burglar, and I'm hanging with you day after day after day, either I'm a burglar with you, or I'm trying to stop you from doing it. Nine out of 10, after one or two days, I'm involved. So the old saying is all birds flock together, it's true. So you know who's who in those settings. You know who the skinheads are. You know who the radicals are. You know who the motorcycle guys are. You know who this person are. You know who the mob is. You know who everybody has a group. And very few people can walk any prison in the world and not have a group because no one man controlled thousands of people. One day, you would be, one day you can be okay. The next day, things changes. And so that support group has to be tight and it has to be motivated 
to give their lives to protect you, and you have to give yours to protect them. They are the rules. And that, that's, that's what I was saying about uh, the stuff you see on TV is 90% fabricated to scare people from, or young people, which is a good tactic, but it's not the real deal. The real deal is still scary. Show it. And that's part of, of the survival. You don't know nothing, you don't see nothing. Even if it's your own homie, your own bull, your own friend, your own brother. Yes, people broke the rules. But you can't walk around and break the rules. Once you break the rules of being a snitch, once you break the rule of being a person that's seen something and spoke about it, even to another enemy, you might be in a body bag if you don't take lockup. Then you're already locked up, but they can lock you up two times. And some people take that route. What's a boxing match like in prison? A boxing match in prison, it's like a, a more organized UFC MMA fight. It's not necessarily um, any rules, even though it's boxing. What I mean by that is we're not allowed to kick in boxing. We're not allowed to choke in boxing. But sometimes somebody's getting the worst of the sparring. That fight winds up on the block, winds up in a stabbing. What happened? Uh, he got knocked out by such and such in the boxing ring. They take it personal. So you, you really can't look at it as like, you know, like on the streets, you know, your boxers say, okay, man, it was a good fight, man, this and that. No, 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 they take it personal. So you really got to get their respect in the ring by beating them and then outside of the ring. Tell me about the role Stoney Wilson has played in your life. Uh, Smokey Wilson. Smokey Wilson, I'm sorry. Yeah, Smokey, uh, on a life bit, uh, he's incarcerated for what we call, uh, uh, in the day of Philadelphia, gang war was, was before the blood and crips in the West Coast. Uh, he served life sentence since 1978 for gang war homicide. Gang war and killed someone. Um, time I got there, years later, decades, um, he was one of the trainers that was in Gradyford that um, seen my talent by shadow boxing. And he seen me getting fights on the block all the time where um, my talent was being used like it was in the streets. And being a young guy, I guess, as he was coming in, he seen another young guy coming in that have fighting skills that I, like he had. So I was kind of like, you know, you box? I used to. He had a, like a really lazy detached eye because he got thumbed in the eye before, of course, the thumbless gloves came out. And uh, he has a really a, a bad detached retina. I think it's his left eye. And so he told me how his eye got messed up. 
And he said, I got messed up by Artie McLeod when we used to box tournaments in prison. Artie McLeod. Artie McLeod was my mother's brother. I have three generations on both sides of the family that box locally in Philadelphia that established their names as middleweights and light heavyweights. That there brought on a conversation that brought us together to the day. And I've been home two decades. And he's been incarcerated for over two decades. My uncle and him was rivals in prison. My uncle, Artie McLeod, who's deceased now, did five years. He also, my uncle, um, was gang worn. Shot through a house, they killed the lady. They gave him involuntary manslaughter because the court feels that his intention wasn't to shoot the lady, was to shoot the guy. But when you're shooting in a house, you never know who you're shooting or who want to get shot. That's how me and Smokey became trustworthy of each other. He became my trainer. He became my schooling. He became my watch this, don't do that. And I didn't know then, but as a year or two went by, I realized that he was actually living through me. Because he had a career, not actually off the ground, but he wanted to be what I became. What do you think you learned from Smokey? No matter what position you're in, you still have to believe you have a chance, even if it's to get out. He still feels that way. It might happen, it might not. But to feel you have a chance and to feel that you're going to not, because of your doing, live in spite of, you already did without being in the ground. While you were in prison, uh, your brother was killed. Yes. How did you learn about what happened? Making a phone. I learned first my brother was killed in uh, 1984, the year um, I was incarcerated. And um, I believe it was sometime in January, early February of 84. I learned about it on a phone call. Um, we're allowed to make 10 minute phone calls um, in prison. And Saturday morning, um, making my routine phone call, just to holler, see what people doing, call home. One sister handed the phone to another sister, another sister handed the phone to the other sister. So three or four sisters didn't have the phone and nobody said anything. So I, I, I felt something was wrong. Instinct. And then obviously I was told. Um, There's about 10 people waiting in the line for the phone. You're in this little room, glass door. The poker face had to be at its best. Because once you come out of that phone room, which had four phones in, and you open that door and you come out, faces are looking at you, and you are looking at faces. It's the same as you're looking at me now. And so 
as you walk past and you get to wherever you got to go, which is my cell. That was the point where you say to yourself and you let everything that you have to let out. And then you find out later on what happened, how it happened, who did it. Are they locked up? If they locked up, they're going to be coming here soon. He wound up getting the same time I got. I got 5 to 15 for strong on robberies. He got 5 to 15 for homicide. And so that's the way thing goes. Um, he did come through. He took lockup. Um, I'm glad he did. Um, I wouldn't have been here. Really? No. No. How? You, you, you. I'd have been forced to get him killed or kill him because I couldn't survive with a guy in a situation where we in the same childhood, we in the same gym, we in the same yard, and the streets talk and the jails talk. So where my reputation? Where I stand where a guy killed my brother and nothing was done and I'm in this jail? Are you kidding? I would have been forced to risk my life and my mother Shirley Hopkins would have lost two sons in one year. Because I would have been in jail for the rest of my life and she would have been buried in one. And so the biggest break that I didn't have, I wasn't even aware of. Yeah, I was aware they took lockup because they knew I was there, but I wasn't aware till late that how the biggest break, even though I remember being as mad as hell that he was such a coward that he wouldn't come out, didn't know that he was really saving my life. Back, you don't go back then. You, your ego is up, your, your revenge is up. You got homies, you got boys, man, we, we, you know, we spitting this food. We got we to gotta, we gotta go down there and, and deliver the food. You know, you always, got, you always got inmates doing all the stuff that happens in prison. Inmates cook the food, inmates feed the whole, the whole is the lockup people. They put the trays down and they, so I already knew that, that, that uh, um, little things that can be done but eventually they shipped him out, and eventually I got my time, and I was shipped out, you know, graded for it. So, um, but yeah, that's, 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 that, that, was, uh, that was a favor without being a favor. How well do you recall visiting the cemetery for the first time following your release from prison? Uh, I visited the cemetery last month, but I remember um, visiting the cemetery because now that my mom, my father, my grandfather, and my brother is in the same plot, um, um, I'll say within a month. I'll say in a month because I I'm not a really um, a, a graveyard type guy. It, but I bring that up because you had the opportunity to do something really special for him after you yeah. made uh, the first time you made money from boxing. Yeah, I bought the tombstone, and it's there now. And of course, I, I, 
you know, I, pre I prepared for somebody else going to leave. So when I did the tombstone, I didn't just do a little one. I did a nice size tombstone. And when you go past there now, it's like, it's, you know, the plot is filled, you know. Um, so um, the tombstones have many names on there. What's been your most satisfying victory for you personally? Two weeks after 9-11, uh, Jim Brown was there from LA. It was so many people there. It was packed, 20,000 people under one roof in New York City two weeks after 9-11. Um, that would be attached to the biggest night of my career as a fight itself, but also the worst tragedy of, of the history of the United States that I played not a part in, but played a part of not being a hostage and a prisoner in, in, your, in our homes uh, across the world, especially in New York City. The fight was supposed to be uh, September 15th. Yeah. Obviously, it was postponed due My to 9-11. My best performance under the mental situation. Um, and it was the first major sporting event in Manhattan yes. following the September yes. 11th yes. terrorist attacks. What was the environment like? In environment the crazy, dogs, FBI agents, DAs, DEA. Uh, every law enforcement that you can name, and some I probably don't even know of, that was there. Um, we got checked um, before in hit, hit it to the ring. Um, and, and the reason we're doing this is because we want to show people you can go out. It's a bold move because uh, just imagine if it was something that happened in Madison Square Garden in spite of all the security and all that, with 20,000 people on there, somebody's job, and I think uh, Giuliani, was the, was the uh, mayor at the time, um, heads would have been rolling because that fight could have easily been canceled and no question about it, who's going to complain and who's going to mention it. How selfish can you be? People are lies. They burnt up in furnaces, uh, jumping out the windows. So I had to pull myself together. The fight's going to happen. Let me deal with it and block things out and win this fight, 9-11 um, is always attached to it. And you know what? Just for the history's sake of it, I don't mind. Because it shows the significance of the world that time and how we pulled it off. Forget who won, who lost. I'm glad I won. But we pulled it off because I can say in a proud moment, in a, not a bragging moment, that we was the biggest show two weeks after we'd been attacked. And we brought people out to see the biggest fight. And you know what? We didn't let them down because it was a fantastic fight. It was a fight where, in some cases, the wrong guy won. But it was a fight where people say, man, it was a good fight. And the guy that's supposed to lose won. Thanks for listening to my interview with Bernard Hopkins. For more, including his calculated move to diss Puerto Rico ahead of a big fight, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And as always, please like and subscribe. It goes a long way in growing this podcast. Thanks again for listening.